Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Yes, your favorite singer, Sheldon Man, I will destroy them for you. John Fogarty? So here's the rule. If you're a great act, you want a great opening act. And probably the greatest opening act certainly I've ever seen, Dennis Blair is with us. He's been with us before. We always get a ton of mail. Dennis, great to have you back. Uh, Boy, you are busy. I mean, I thought with the pandemic there wouldn't be much going on. But what, you got a book coming out uh, just today or the day before? You got a song? Um, You just stay busy, don't you? Well, if I don't stay busy, I go nuts. So what can I tell you? I mean, you know, the, yeah, the book's out already. The book has been out for a week. And um, the song, yeah, we're still working on the songs and uh, doing a couple of Zoom comedy shows. But, you know, I could be busier. Let's, let's put it that way. <laughs> that almost sounds like an entertainment version of Zig Ziglar. You know, I'm great, but I could be better. So, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, the book is called Touring with Legends, a comics tale of opening for Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Tom Jones, and many more. And really, the book is great that way because what it is, it's those great stories. Everybody wonders what you guys do when you're not performing and you kind of cover all that it's hanging out with those different people we know them on the stage but you got to know them in a different way yeah well you know i mean uh three and a half years with rodney dangerfield and you, you get to know a guy after that one thing the time especially <laughs> since he was like you know like a friend and he became he was sort of like took me under his wing you know uh and then joan same thing you know two years with her uh a year with tom jones i really didn't get to know tom because he was in a different orbit you know, he he had the private planes, and I traveled with the band on the bus. So that's the way that went. But there's still some pretty funny stories about him too in there, uh, and you know George Carlin for 18 years. So uh, did a lot of, did a lot of hanging out with these people. That's for sure. Well, you did have one story about Tom Jones that I wanted to ask you. So let's just get that out of the way. You got mooned by his band in front of 3,000 people. Uh, explain. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, well, the, 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 the short story is, you know, there's, there's, I don't know if you, there's a place called Mud Island. It's in, it's in Tennessee. Uh, it, it's a theater there, and um, they have a theater there, and you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a thing in the middle of the, of where the people sit. Uh, it's kind of like a, like a tower, and... As I was on stage uh, doing my show, Tom's band, who I was really friendly with, opened these doors of this tower, and the people couldn't see them, but they just, they all <laughs> butt naked, and they just <laughs> mooned me while I was on stage, and I could not stop laughing. And these people, like, were going, uh, what, uh, did, did, did the comedian just have a seizure? But, you know, I'm, like, dying laughing. And uh, uh, out, of, out of the view of the people in the audience, I got mooned by about 12 different band members. It was great. <laughs> Well, that is great. Isn't that kind of a thing that you always try to get the comedian to crack up? And it's kind of hard because, uh, you know, you've heard them all, you've done them all. Something like that, though, you could never have expected. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really kind of different. 
you know, that, that get, getting mooned in front of 3,000 people is, you know, kind of like it's not a normal everyday occurrence. So they got me on that one. <laughs> well, let's talk first about Rodney Dangerfield because that's where you got your start. And Rodney, you know, new talent, and he was uh, one of those guys, one of those rare comedians that uh, always wanted to share the spotlight. He was great that way. And what is he like? Because, I mean, we, we all know the, you know, I don't get no respect and that whole thing. What is he actually like like that uh, off the stage? Well, he was, you know, um, Rod, Rodney wasn't what you would call a happy individual. You know, I mean, he was, you know, his act was getting no respect. It was His persona was pretty much an extension of the way he was, which was just kind of like, you know, nothing makes any sense. And it doesn't, you know, it's, it's not worth it. And, you know, life is... Life was a crock, you know, basically. And this is this is after he's like, you know, selling out theaters and arenas, and he's still going. What's it all mean, man? You know, he had this real. He said, "I got a downhead. I was born with a downhead, and that's the way I'll always be." But you know, but then there was another side where he was in a better mood, which happened, you know, often enough. And then you can hang out with him and have a lot of laughs. And uh, and he was very kind, you know, very very kind to. He liked young comics, which I was at the time. And he would do anything to help. And if it wasn't for Rodney, I wouldn't be anywhere near where I am today. You know, the career I had was really basically he started me down that road of opening for all these people. So, you know, we had some great funny stories, too. And they're in the book about like stuff that just had dopey stuff that happened on the road. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I mean, once just we, we, he did a he did a private party for like like 50 people and. And he couldn't turn it down. They were going to pay him like a fortune. And he felt bad about it. He said, I don't care how big you are. How do you turn down $50,000 for 20 minutes? That's what they paid him. And we did it in this guy's living room. And he had me open for him, which was ridiculous. And as we're, <laughs> At the guy's as house? <laughs> at the guy's house. He had like 50, 60 people at a party. And it was like a surprise. But it was like a CEO for this company. And he just to surprise his 30-year-old son on his 30th birthday, he had Rodney Dangerfield appear and do 20 minutes of comedy. And we did, and we did the show. It was ridiculous. It was stupid. And 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 on the way home, Roddy just kept going. I don't care how big you are. How can you turn down fifty thousand dollars for twenty minutes? Well, is is part of that, Dennis, the fact that it took him a while? I mean, he was on for a while, then he actually went and sold yeah. aluminum yeah. siding, came back. So, but when you've gone through all that, you care about what people think, and you don't turn down money. I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, first of all, yeah, he, he's right. You know, he doesn't care how, you know, you can make, put 50,000 bucks in your bank. That's something, something that some people make in a year, you know, and, uh, and he, he, how are you going to turn that down? But yeah, I mean, he, he, I mean, even though when he was doing great, you know, uh, doing uh, casinos, he would, I would go into his uh, hotel room. And he'd be marrying the shampoo, the hotel shampoos together, you know, so that he could he could save all the hotel shampoos. I mean, this is a guy who could afford to buy a shampoo company, and he's putting the shampoos together. So you know, you guess it just proves that you just never really change who you are, no matter what happens in your career. Yeah, and, and he had a good eye for talent because, like, he, he grabbed you, he saw what the there, and then he picked a completely different person later on, Sam Kennison. I mean, that's a guy that I guess if it's funny, it's funny. Yeah, he loved Sam. I remember. I mean, Sam never. Op- I don't know if Sam ever opened for him. He might have opened for him once or twice, but uh, but I remember he was uh, at Dangerfield's Rodney, and he was telling me, "Yeah, I just got back from Houston, and I saw this this great comic. He was terrific. I wish I could remember his name." He saw him at a club somewhere, and then like a few months later, Sam comes into Dangerfield, and we start talking, you know, and he, I didn't know him, and he didn't know me, but he starts describing his act, and I go, 
I think I think Rodney saw you in Houston um, a couple of months ago. He's downstairs. You want to meet him? And he said, yeah. So basically, I introduced Sam Kinison to Rodney, and uh, Rodney from there took it and, like, you know, I guess helped Sam with his career and helped him take off. So yeah, you just true. never know what's going to happen. Well, one last thing about Rodney. After three years, you know, I, I, you're still doing it to this day. There's really no way to talk about him without doing that voice, right? I mean, it's just it's automatic. I I can't. I mean, I talk about it. Just do you know when I, when I talk about I talk about Jackie Mason. I do Jackie Mason. I can't help it. You just if you're an impressionist, which is kind of what I am in many ways. You start doing the person that you're doing. So yeah, Rodney. You know, I mean, you can't you can't get away from that voice. You know. Well, you wrote. Uh, did you write that Broadway uh, musical? As I recall, that uh, that Mason really talk about hitting it late in life. I mean, he was always well known, always a, a big guy. But well, here's the thing with the. Uh, here, here's what happened. I'll, I'll make it as short as possible. Jill, who Jill, who was um, Jackie's manager, called me up one day out of the blue, and we I'd known them for years. You know, I opened for Jackie for a long time. Anyways, Jill says, "Hey, Dennis, can you write? Can you write sketches?" And I'm going, I, "I've written sketches. Why do you ask?" And he she basically told me they had five writers that were trying to do this show where Jackie basically revived vaudeville. And they needed to, you know, they they, they were going to hire actors and it was going to be not just Jackie on stage because Jackie wanted to do another Broadway show, right. uh, but he was too tired to do it all by himself. He says, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to just stand there for an hour and a half and just talk to people. I want a bunch of people jumping around on stage, helping me out. So that's what happened. So we basically came up with, I mean, I just was put on as a writer and for months and months we walked, worked on making this a Broadway show and we tried it out in Poughkeepsie and we had to keep working on it. And, you know, I mean, it was getting, yeah. and we finally got to Broadway and, you know, I mean, it, the critics didn't like it. You know, the critics, you know, the critics just wanted Jackie doing his, his stuff. And the, the, the other drawback was Jackie couldn't sing. And in a musical, that's kind of important. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, you know, if somebody comes up with an idea, you're, you're all ears. I mean, you wrote Easy Money, and I was really impressed with that. I think that's an underappreciated film. Everybody thinks of Back to School. But Easy Money was pretty funny. You know, it was a, it was a good use of you know, his comic abilities, I thought. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. When it came out, it got okay reviews, I think. And, um, yeah, I mean, as, the, as one of the writers, you know, Rodney was such a strong a persuasive individual that he he wanted the movie to be packed with one-liners. Yeah. And, you know, the writers were trying to explain to him, you know, it doesn't always have to be a joke joke. It can be like, we put Rodney in a situation, and it was always that tug of war where he didn't see it was, if the, if the scene was funny, unless there were, you know, one-liners and his kind of jokes. So we had that kind of tension going on. But I think we, want, we finally wound up making it into a pretty solid piece of work. And, you know, it got okay reviews when it came out. But I think you're right. I think over time, people have started to appreciate it more. And uh, I, I get approached all the time. Oh, you, that's my favorite movie of all time. You know, people will come up to me and who grew up with that in the 80s. So, yeah, you never know. I guess it's the same thing that happened with It's a Wonderful Life, you know. It's like it didn't do well at the box office, but then it became this classic. Not that I'm comparing Easy Money to It's a Wonderful <laughs> Life, but, but, you know, it happens yeah. sometimes. It has to grow over the, over the years. Well, you know, all the comics, everybody wants a situation comedy. I mean, for a while, you know, Tim Allen had the Ray Romano, all that stuff. But it seems like, like you're just saying about Rodney, part of the problem, I would imagine, is they just want to keep coming out and hitting it. And to develop that kind of, uh, I don't know, personality, I guess you have to have that type of comedy, right, to be able to kind of blend in to, do, to, to get a sit sitcom. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. If, I don't know what the magic formula is. So many of us in the '80s, you know. I mean, that was. I always thought. I always wanted. I was. I certainly wouldn't have turned down a sitcom if it was offered to me. But I never really got much of a chance. Whereas, you know, you get a person like Robin Williams, and it's obvious. Oh, this guy should have his own show, or Tim Allen, or Roseanne, or somebody like that, because their acts. You know, just like the conducive to oh, we can take what she's talking about and turn that into a whole whole TV thing. You know, Ray Romano, same yeah. thing, talking about his kids, the father. You know, with you know with with and uh, yeah. So uh, even George had a show for a while. Carlin had a show for a while, and it ran for two years. So you yeah, never that was, know. That was an interesting show because he kind of pushed the you know, of course, who, who what would you expect him to do? But he kind of pushed the boundaries a bit. I mean, at that time, I remember watching it and go, wow, you know, he's kind of out there. I mean, at that time, you couldn't get away with stuff on commercial TV, and he kind of pushed right. it. It's kind of a shame yeah. it didn't go further. Yeah. Uh, also, he was very frustrated because he had these 27, 28-year-old executives who were trying to run things, and they just would tell him what they thought was funny, and that's not funny. And, you know, you can't really tell someone like George Carlin that that's not funny if he thinks it's funny, you know, so... He started out with a big, big high hopes with his sitcom, and and by the end he was just kind of discouraged and was back, glad to get back on the road doing stand up, which is what he really did. Yeah, and I mean he he might be the best of all time in terms of stand. I mean I, I I don't know how you compare him to like Richard Pryor, there's two different types, but it just seemed like it was such a perfect place for him, and and you could see he worked at it, right? I mean he was constantly trying new things, trying to find just the right way to do it. It wasn't something that he just was a funny guy, wrote a bunch of jokes and went out there. Yeah, he was. Uh, I, I think he was most proud of him. I think he thought of himself mostly as a writer first and foremost. And you know, I mean, he performed. I mean, he was a great performer too. But I, you know, he would just he would just hold up in his hotel room and just be writing constantly for the next HBO special every two or three years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I put him right up there with Richard Pryor and Lenny Bruce and all those guys. You know, I mean, there's no doubt about it. You know, and his work ethic was amazing. Just constantly putting out stuff and good and great stuff too. Yeah, really good. And, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what do you think Dennis would think about with the last four years, the political situation in the U.S.? And, and I think, yeah, I think he would have gone crazy, but I think it might be stuff we don't even we can't even imagine because he never just took the easy route. His stuff was always way out there. He was almost really more of an anarchist. Yeah, uh, he um, people ask me that all the time. What would George be saying? And I'm going, well, first of all, I don't have his I don't have his brain, which is was incredibly advanced. So I couldn't say, but I said, but my guess is from what he did in the past, I mean, he was so down on the human race as a species to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he did whole bits about, you know, this whole planet, you know, they're not going to miss us. And, you know, we're just totally screwing up everything. And we were we were a once uh, promising species and now forget it. So I wouldn't be surprised if most of his political stuff would be it just proves my point. We're just <laughs> sick and stupid and perverted and we ha and we're stupid, you know. And so I would I would I wouldn't be surprised if that would be been the tack he took, you know. Um but um Well as somebody who followed his career, of course you're with him a long time it actually got worse, right? I mean, because I think of like he just—I used to buy his albums all the time, and it got like he got angrier and angrier and angrier. You know, still very funny, but uh, yeah, he was a little more discouraged as the years went on. Yeah, well, some, I mean, the audience is good. The audience has felt that they would even ask me, "Why is George so angry?" I go, "I don't know. Ask him." You know, <laughs> yeah. I really had no answer. I mean, that was the path he chose to be on. You know. Um, 
Um, and, you know, I mean, Pete, you know, he still filled the halls and people would come. And I, I think people started coming for that sort of, you know, may, maybe a little bit less punchline-y, like get to the joke kind of thing. And he just wanted to get his thoughts out. Uh, he became more of an essayist. He was like, you know, reading. He was like an essay writer who performed his essays, you know. Yeah. So so I, it would have been interesting to see which which way he would have gone if he continued going, you know. But um yeah, uh, yeah, but 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 even the dark stuff to me was always just amazing. Oh, oh yeah, the thought that went into it, and, and uh, you know the, the passion, and he really believed that stuff. Well, yeah, and I always got the idea he didn't like what I call like the automatic thing, like we hate this politician, so we're all going to clap. I think he wanted to make you think more. I really do, and and that no. was the brilliance of his stuff. Right, 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 right. And he, yeah, he wouldn't always just take the easy path, like you know you would have expected him to like one politician over the other, and not always. You know, I mean, you know he. He, he pretty much gave it to Democrats and Republicans in, in you know, almost equal measure, not completely, but almost equal. Well, one person we didn't talk about that you talk about in the book, uh, Joan Rivers, who, again, unfortunate, uh, you know, her tragic death was was right. really kind of caught everybody by surprise. But I've heard she's pretty good to work with, too. Uh, is that true? Yeah, I, we had great. We had a great time on the road. You know, it's funny with Rodney. Rodney would kind of demand and, and take over your time. You know, it's like you know he'd call up, "Hey, come over to the house. We'll do some writing." And he couldn't, as an opening act, you couldn't exactly say no. <laughs> yeah. You know, you want to keep your job. And you know, he was great. But Joan was like, Joan didn't want to write together, but she was like a den mother. She would, you know, we'd go to Tahoe, and you'd get a phone call at ten in the morning, and you'd be half asleep, and she'd go, "We're all going on the yacht. What? What yacht?" <laughs> Caesars has a yacht. We're all going water skiing. And you go, okay, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so you'd go out water skiing with Joan and the entourage here and there. Or you'd go to a, you'd go to a, a nightclub after a show. And there's a whole story in the book about how we went to see uh, Graceland, Elvis's house, after, after a show. So there was, there was no, it was not part of a tour. It was, we got the, uh, we got the uh, private tour. We yeah. got to go upstairs and see his bedroom and apparently the bathroom where he died and, uh, it was pretty amazing. So yeah, she was she was a lot of fun, and you know we traveled with Gary Shandling very often. So he was a great guy too, and we had a lot of laughs on the road with her. So great memories all all around. Yeah, well, you know, you sound like you get along with these people, and what I like your your act is great, and it always seems that if you're going to go see one of these people, your act was was really good. It just was different. The last thing you want to see is kind of a lesser version of the star, and, and, and yours isn't that at all. It's, it's it's very good, and it's completely different. Is that something that you think kind of helped you in that role? Well, you know, the music, well, thanks thanks for thinking my act was good. I, appreciate, I always appreciate that. <laughs> um, but, you know, the music part, I think, was a big reason why I not only opened up for rock bands, but also for comics, because all the comics I opened for, they were non-musical, you know, they were malologists, they did jokes, you know, and they told, they told stories. And, you know, a guy like me comes out with a guitar and does goofy song parodies, and it's not going to infringe on what they're doing at all. So that was really helpful. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was, it, it worked out well. It kept me off a lot of the big TV shows being a musical comic, because, you know, with the parodies, you really can't, they don't really, they get a little scared of being sued if you do a parody of a song. But, but on the on the plus side, you know, I got to open for like all sorts of different entertainers, comedians included. Yeah. Well, your parodies are kind of let's see, how can I say it? They're not mean. You know, when you hear it, they're very funny, but they're not. At least the ones I've heard don't really yeah. make a lot of fun of the band that's playing. It's more just it's funny, you know, and then the, and the words yeah. and so forth. 
Yeah, well, I remember, you know, the, one of the first, the first parody I ever wrote was uh, Singing Too High, the Bee Gees, Staying Alive. You know, my Singing Too High, just making fun of their voices. And uh, Barry, Barry Gibbs was fine with it. You know, I, I think we had to get a release from them, and they heard the song. and said, yeah, that's good. Go ahead. Yeah, we don't care. That's funny. So, you know, <laughs> the ones with the sense of humor you had never had a problem with. And I never really had a problem with any of them. From, I never heard John Denver, I think, like my parodies that I did of his... Um, so, that must feel yeah. good, yeah. Because yeah. you're not trying to tick anybody off, you know. No, no. And also, they're they're all basically big enough to take it. And you get a guy like me, I'm just a that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to worry about a guy like me. So there you, you go. Your book, in addition to who you uh, open for and stuff, you talk about some other things. I had one question right off the bat. You say you pissed off Howard Stern. How'd you do that? Yeah. Well, Howard Stern was fired by NBC uh, in the '80s. Uh, I, I forget what the reason. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was for language or FCC problems. And anyway, he was fired. So I had a friend who worked at NBC. He was a page, and he said, "Hey, Dennis, you should go down. You should call up this Dale Parsons guy, who was, I guess, the head of radio programming. They're looking for all sorts of people to replace Howard." Now, I I never had any intention of. I was not going to replace Howard Stern. You know, who's going to do that? You're going to get all sorts of crap heaped upon you. But I figured that's a good idea to go down there and just meet with this guy. Who knows? Maybe there'd be a radio thing in my future. So I went there to NBC, and as I'm in the waiting room, uh, boy Gary comes in and says, Oh, Dennis, how you, what's going on again? And I said, Oh, you know, they're, I guess Howard got fired, so they're looking at people. And I guess he went back and told Howard that I'm after his job or something like that. And I heard that Howard got really pissed off at me. I just try to say, I'm not after his job. You'd have to be crazy to want to take over for Howard, you know. But apparently he got pissed off. And who knows, maybe he's still pissed. Or maybe since he's warm and a different guy now, maybe he would... After all these years, he wouldn't care. But uh, but yeah. he apparently, he's really angry about it. Like I was gonna, like I was at, He'd been fired already, so you know. Well, <laughs> like, and you don't like, strike me as the type of guy like uh, you know, like some of the psychics, Jackie Martling and so forth, where they go on shows and they're talking about it all the time. I, right. you're more of a guy to just move on, right? I mean, you don't, you, oh, you yeah. don't care that yeah. much. About I mean, that. you know, like I, like I said, I it didn't impact me that much. I was just, you know, I was just, ah, I don't like to piss people off, you know. But what can you do? Obviously, you know, if he were to talk to me, I'd say, no, this is what I have. I just wanted to go down and meet the radio guy since he was seeing everybody. That's all. Yeah. This yeah. book is great. It's called Touring with the Legends, a comic's tale of opening for Rodney Dangerfield, Joan Rivers, George Carlin, Tom Jones, and many more. A great book. What else do you expect? Dennis's stuff is great. Before we let you go, though, I do want to talk to you about your music because, of course, you've got 20, 30 things going on. First of all, this, pan- this pandemic thing, did it drive you nuts? Because I thought of all the people I know, you might, you might be the most annoyed because you can't do things. It's extremely annoying. Let's put it this way. I mean, you know, it is like Groundhog Day. You wake up every day, can't do it. You can't do no live performance. And I know I've done a few of the Zoom shows, the comedy shows that they put on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just not the same as, you know, a live crowd. I mean, it's good to keep your chops up and, you know, try out a new thing here and there. So, yeah, it really is annoying. So what I did is I started turning back to my original career, which was music and been writing songs and I put out an EP called Songs from Captivity and uh, got a whole bunch of new ones coming up for when I finally get to go back to Nashville and record again. I record in Nashville once a year. I put out an album every year, year and a half. Um, so yeah, I mean, I got that going, you know, and uh, between between the music stuff and writing some music and uh, trying to come up with new bits that I can do when it, all this is over, you know, I'm, I'm keeping relatively sane, but I 
I can't wait for this stuff to be gone. <laughs> now, this, this new album, is it the country rock blues album? It's called what? Music from uh, Big Brick? Is that right? No, no, that I put out uh, about a year and a half ago. That was before the pandemic, and that has 14 songs on it. Oh, and, um, okay. Yeah, I've been doing, I've been reviving the music career now for the last five years because I reunited with my old songwriting partner, and that's a long story. But uh, we started writing together, and we realized, hey, these, these are pretty good songs, and uh, we get and they're played by the greatest players in Nashville because we found this great studio that does that. Well, I have uh, some friends that follow you, and they tell me about a song called "I Miss George Jones," and that yeah. interests me right away because George Jones, if you're in that country world, he was kind of like the Ted Williams, you know, or of, of that world. He's highly respected, and that's kind of cool. How did that song come about? Uh, I've always been a fan. Of, I've been a fan of George Jones for for years and years and years, and one day, my, my writing partner, who writes the lyrics you know, of some of the songs, I do some of them myself, but he, he contributes lyrics every once in a while. And he said, hey, I got this lyric, and it's called I Miss George Jones, and I know you love George Jones, and if you want to put music to it, there you go. So he sent it to me, and I put music to it, and uh, that's on the music from Big Brick album, and it's, I think it's a special bonus track or something. But, yeah, that's been getting played. A lot of my songs are getting played internationally because I have a, I, I contribute them to a, a compilator and uh, he gets them out to DJs across the world and a lot of these songs get played, uh, you know, in Denmark and the UK and France and Belgium and all these places. And that's cool. Well, you you yeah. go to Europe or something and I was like, I know that guy, what? <laughs> you know? Well, that's, that's the thing. I mean, I, if this is over, I might actually think about, you know, maybe taking a trip and seeing if I can get a little show going over there. Who knows? You know? Absolutely. One last thing when we talk about music. I am a huge fan, and I think I told you that the last time we talked, and uh, you were telling me about some of this music from, like, the big band sound, kind of the, you know, that sort of thing. Hapless romantic uh, mo modern songs from a classic era. That is fantastic. If you like that kind of music, and my kids accuse me of really being like 80 or 90, but if you like that music, it is fantastic. You have a real feel for that, huh? Is that something you always liked? Because it just seems so natural when I was listening to it. Yeah, well, I'm one of those guys who doesn't have like one era that he's stuck in with music. I mean, you know, I was a Beatles guy, of course, Rolling Stones and uh, James Taylor and Paul Simon, all those guys. But I also had a real affection for songs from the 30s and 40s, you know, Cole Porter and Gershwin. And I used to go in, when I lived in New York, we, I'd go see Bobby Short all the time, yeah. and Carmen McRae. And, yeah, I just love all kinds of music. As long as it's good, there's no reason to limit yourself. And, you know, again, my friend and I, my old partner, used to write songs like that uh, in, in that style, in that Cole Porter style, in that uh, 30s, 40s style. And we just loved, we just loved it. And I got an opportunity because the studio here... The guy who owns it said, "Hey, uh, why don't we just record some of your old, you know, your, your old style, uh, 30s style music, and I won't charge you anything." And I said, "That sounds like a good deal." And yeah. I got this, I got this great trio together that I know in Las Vegas, and we just did it. You know, it didn't really cost me anything. I just had to pay those guys, but uh, put it out there. Why not? Oh yeah, if you're a fr uh, if you're a fan of the Great American Songbook. Yeah, get this. Go on there and get it because I'll tell you, you know, we've heard all the other songs uh, that we all love, but to hear something new like that and it just fits in, it's great. How, how can we get it? If people want to get that or they want to get music from Big Brick, what's the easiest yeah. way to do it? Uh, it, it? Everything everything that I've put out so far is on Spotify. So if you have Spotify, you, you can just get it there or it's on iTunes or Amazon. Any of the streaming services, just any of them, you can you know download it and just put it on your phone or your whatever. 
And yeah, those three three albums, there's Hapless Romantic and Music from Big Brick, and then there's the new one, Songs from Captivity, which has only seven songs on it. But uh, yeah, all my stuff I put out on online. Oh, that's terrific. And then finally, the book. we got to get the book, Touring with yeah. Legends. Well, how do we get that? Same deal. Amazon has it. Uh, there's also, if you go to BearManorMedia.com, that's uh, Manor, M-A-N-O-R, so it's all one word, BearManorMedia.com. You can order it there, or you can go on Amazon, and they have it on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I think there's going to be a digital version coming out in a, a week or two. So if you if you prefer that, just wait a week or two, and you can get it that way. Dennis, I know we'll be talking again soon because you never stop working. <laughs> Thank you so much. I really enjoyed chatting with you today. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. By the way, Dennis has CDs of his albums available for just ten bucks if you prefer your music in that form. Just email Dennis at BlairStuff at AOL.com and he can mail them to you. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. Have your collectibles taken over your house? Well, maybe it's time for those treasures to find a new home. And I've got just the place to help you do that. The place to go is Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, where they are always buying. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads has over 35 years of experience buying collections of sports cards, memorabilia, bobbleheads, toys, action figures, comic books, Hot Wheels, Star Wars, movie posters, and more. If you've collected it, there's a good chance they'll buy it. No collections are too large or too small. Call Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads at 310-534-4180 or text them pictures of your collection. That number again is 310-534-4180. That's 310-534-4180. Baseball Cards and Bobbleheads, 310-534-4180. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. 
Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.